It's Friday, June 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Today we are talking about the people who pay people to kill people. We are getting more details that the attempted murder on Big Poppy, David Ortiz's life, was a hit job. In New York, a police officer hired a hitman to kill her husband and a young girl. Thankfully, most of the headlines we see are about contract killings that go nowhere. For more, we speak to journalist Rennie Chun about why more often than not, these hit jobs don't succeed. Next, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders is leaving her post at the end of the month. Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico, joins us for how Sanders changed the game, getting rid of daily press briefings, and the president's latest comments on accepting opposition research from foreign entities and not contacting the FBI. Finally, you see them everywhere, people walking around with AirPods in their ears, and it can lead to some awkward social interactions where you don't know if the music is turned down or if the other person is even paying attention. But is there a case to be made for wearing them all the time? Marina Corrin, science reporter at The Atlantic, joins us for one good reason. It can help some safely ignore street harassers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So the instigator would think in his mind, say over and over, this is not, I'm not at fault here because I'm not pulling the trigger. And then on the other side of the equation, the hitman says, well, I'm not at fault here because I'm just following orders. Joining us now is Rennie Chun, contributor to The Atlantic. We're going to be talking about the people who pay people to kill people. Hitmen, we get a lot of stories in the news about contract killings. A lot of times they go nowhere. The story is usually... So-and-so paid for somebody, but they got caught. There was an undercover sting officer involved, things like that. But there is a little bit of data that we have to explore the idea. Just case in point, the story with David Ortiz that was just going on in the Dominican Republic, that was purportedly to be some type of hit job. The people that were going to be doing it were going to be paid $8,000 to kill David Ortiz. It went wrong. Thankfully, he's, he's alive still. But tell us a little bit about this, about the people who try to make hits out on other people. Yeah, I'll just remind your listeners that it wasn't just Big Poppy this week. It was also the New York City cop, Valerie Cincinelli, who paid her boyfriend $7,000, a similar sum, to take out a contract on her ex and his new girlfriend's teenage daughter. So I think this comes down to what we often find in life when we're in the market to buy something. You get what you pay for. And this is the problem when people who aren't connected to the criminal underworld and they don't know Luca Brazzi, they end up hiring, casting a wide net, and everyone thinks they know someone, whether it's someone former military who knows how to handle a sniper rifle or whether some relative that did time in jail. It goes on and on. But invariably, what happens is that people get spooked. And then something called the CI surfaces, which is cop speak for criminal informant. And all of a sudden, you've got a a federal sting operation going on and someone goes to jail. Just to further the point of sometimes you hire somebody that doesn't know what they're doing, things like that. Going back to the David Ortiz example, the guy that shot him in the back, he jumped on the back of the motorcycle escape guy. He fell off the back of that motorcycle. And then that's when other people there at that bar beat him up and held him until 
police got there. So yeah, tons of things can go wrong. You really never know what you're paying for. I would say this. First of all, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. There were six weak weak links here, right? There were six people, which is insane for a hit job, right? That comes out to about $1,300 a piece. I'm reminded of a guy, this didn't make the article. There's a famous English gangster by the name of Jimmy Moody. He had a career of knocking off people that went on for decades, about 40 years or so. And he coined what's known as the OB. He would award someone an OB, OB. which was an acronym that stood for one behind the ear. Now, as you know, in the Big Poppy case, the guy aimed a little too low, didn't he? Thank God Big Poppy's okay. But if they would have hired a professional killer, it would have been over. Criminologists have a name for the person who hires a hitman. It's called an instigator. Tell us a little bit about that. The instigator is the person that hires or contracts, takes out the contract on their target. Okay, so he hires the hitman. That's what's interesting about doing these crime stories. There's all this lingo, both on the criminal side and the law enforcement side. Instigator, if you said that to the average person, you would just think of a troublemaker, right? Oh, he's such an instigator. But that's what they call the people who try to get people killed. What do experts say about the psychology, both of the people who hire the hitmen and then the hitmen themselves? Like a lot of crimes where people try to rationalize what they're doing is not so bad, they carry on this internal monologue. So the instigator would think in his mind, say over and over, this is not, I'm not at fault here because I'm not pulling the trigger. And then on the other side of the equation, the hitman says, well, I'm not at fault here because I'm just following orders. Someone else wants this person dead, not me. So these people are able to psychologically distance themselves from the crime and hence rationalize it and live with themselves and look at themselves in the morning. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense, especially for the side of the instigator. If you wanted something done badly enough, you would do it yourself. So you can't do it. That's why you're hiring that hitman. Hence, I'm not the murderer. It's that other guy doing it. Exactly. And the other interesting part of the equation here, and this didn't make it into the article, but I'll share it with your listeners, is that when these things go to trial, frequently, if not invariably, it's not the hitman that gets the longer sentence. It's the instigator, okay? The guy that didn't pull the trigger. Because the prosecutors look at this and they see it as more of a heinous crime on the part of the person that basically took out the contract, okay? And so the other thing you have here going on is that the hitmen usually turn state evidence and they flip and they give the the information so they get a lighter sentence. So that's something for people to keep in mind if you have any listeners out there who are thinking of getting into this. You're going to be on the hook. There's hasn't been too many studies done on these subjects, but there was a study done by the Australian Institute of Criminology in 2003. There was another study about contract killings in Tennessee. Tell us a little bit about those findings. The 2003 Australia study is the most definitive. And what makes that one interesting is that, number one, we find out how, and this bears out in all the stories we read in the tabloids, right, that how affordable this is, right? I mean, they, yeah. the, the prices would, would range from a high of 16500 on the high end to $500 on the low end. The other facet of this study is that it was almost evenly split between men and women, 53% men, 47% women. This is in stark contrast to a typical homicide, which is dominated by men to the tune of about 95%. So while women might not be able to bring themselves to pull a trigger, they certainly have no reservations about giving the orders to do it. And when we hear all of the news headlines, some of this bears out here, I guess 20% of all these contracts involved romantic relationships gone wrong. 16% of those were financially motivated. I mean, those are really the things that we 
mostly hear about. For lack of another motive, I mean, it's got to be pretty heinous to want to hire a hitman for somebody. This is where, where art imitates life, right? I mean, all the Hollywood movies and film noir classics, it's all about collecting the insurance money or the love triangle gone wrong. This is, seems to be the case in real life also. I mean, other other reasons to kill other than uh, romantic entanglements or financial gain would be things like killing witnesses to crimes or someone who doesn't like your radio show. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the, the last question I have about this, and we you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but where are most of these people getting caught? Because, I mean, I imagine I don't know anybody. I'm not going to go around and ask other people, hey, do you know somebody that can do this job for me? The first place I'm going to turn to is the Internet. I mean, are people getting caught up because strictly because of the Internet searches? Are cops waiting on some of these dark web places, waiting for people to make contact like this? Well, that's a good point, Oscar. I mean, we live in a post-digital 21st century here. So anytime you're researching anything, you're leaving this digital trail of breadcrumbs, right? So yes, you will see evidence entered into court records of people Googling how to hire a hitman. It's really that simple. But most of these people are caught through a CI, a criminal informant, basically setting up a sting operation. They get it all on tape, frequently on video also. And it's as close to a slam dunk as you can get in the courts. Rennie Chun, contributor to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, You're welcome, Oscar. Thank you. She's going to be going back to Arkansas with her great family. Her husband is a fantastic guy in her family. And I don't know, Phil and folks, if we can get her to run for the governor of Arkansas, I think she'll do very well. And I'm trying to get her to do that. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. we got some big news. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be leaving her office by the end of the month, the president announced. Do we know if this was planned in advance? There's been lots of rumors and some reporting that Sanders was going to leave soon, although we've been hearing that for the last six, seven, eight, nine months. And so she's definitely stayed on longer than we had thought. The question is, who's going to replace her? Oh, yeah. Because right now they don't even have press briefings very often. So there are some deputy press secretaries, but this is not something that Trump really prioritizes very much. The president gave her a lot of praise. They were at an event at the White House and said, you know, I hope she runs for the governor of Arkansas when it comes up. That's not until 2022. Here's a brief little statement from uh, Sarah Sanders. It's one of the greatest jobs I could ever have. I've loved every minute, even the hard minutes. Uh, I have loved it. I love the president. I love the team that I've had the opportunity to work for. And that's very interesting. There have been some very hard times. You're talking about they don't really have a replacement lined up yet. And you also mentioned the daily press briefings. This is part of her legacy, getting rid of those daily press briefings that have been so commonplace with past administrations. This was a decision. And it's hard to say who was behind it, but she didn't want to be in the line of fire anymore. And there's always a crisis or multiple crises every day at the White House under Trump. And so she did not want to be taking those arrows anymore. And so she just eventually stopped having them. They had cut back under Spicer and she lasted much longer than Sean. But we've been wondering what her next step would be with her moving down to Arkansas. That raised lots of questions about her next political move, but she might also do something in PR. But if you're a big company like a GE, would you want to hire someone from the Trump administration? who has had to defend lots of stuff Trump has said. She's gotten caught up in a couple of little lies here and there and having to defend herself 
after we all know that incident that she had at that restaurant where they refused to serve her and her guests. She's part of this Trump, just the overall Trump persona now for, you know, how ardently she's defended the president on so many things. So it'll be very interesting to see how she transitions into normal life and what kind of reception she's going to get at that point. Generally, reporters liked her and she was responsive on the major stories of the day. But this has been a very tough job, given that he doesn't make it easy and he's kind of his own comms person and they don't have a formal comms director either. Who wants to go through the fire every day like that? Especially Trump doesn't look like he might have a second term if he loses in uh, 2020 and all the polls show that it's not looking good. The other issue we wanted to talk to you about was the damage control that the president and his team are going through. This comes after some interviews that he did with ABC's George Stephanopoulos. And he asked him if some foreign entity came up to you and wanted to share dirt on an opponent, on a political opponent, would you take it and would you contact the FBI? And the president pretty much just said, yeah, of course I'd listen. And no, I wouldn't contact the FBI. And even when George Stephanopoulos pressured him a little bit more and said, well, the FBI director says that you should contact the FBI. He said he's wrong. So what's been the damage control after that? The story has dominated D.C., but they've been trying to spin it, saying that he did say he would contact the FBI if there was something wrong. But that's a pretty subjective rule. And we have no way of, you know, it's kind of an open invitation for foreign governments to interfere if they want to. They can try to curry favor with Trump, although if they did try to help Trump and then he was defeated, then they would look bad for the next administration. So I think they're trying to place their bets. And you're, I don't think a country like Norway is going to spread opposition research on <laughs> Joe Biden. That, that's exactly but who he named. <laughs> and he tried to muddy the waters himself saying, you know, I meet with heads of state, foreign governments all the time. I just met with the Queen of England. And if they told me something, am I going to go to the FBI right away? So he tried to muddy those waters. But I, I think it was pretty clear where George Stephanopoulos was going with it, especially considering everything that he just went through with the whole Mueller report, which he calls a witch hunt. And, and fine, there was nothing there on that front. But it, it's pretty clear where the question was coming from. And the president just seems like he doesn't care. Democrats were saying that he's learned nothing from this last couple of years of this investigation. But I think he believes that if he said, oh, yeah, I would contact the FBI, then it would he would be admit, admitting that he should have done so during the 2016 campaign, although there was no evidence that he knew about the Trump Tower meeting per se, and so or little evidence on that. But he did know he was asking Russia to hack into Hillary Clinton's email to try to recover some of them. And so he definitely knew that Russia was interfering. Daniel yep. Littman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Leaving your AirPods in while you're at Starbucks is rude because that barista is owed some common courtesy. But when you're wearing them because you want to ignore someone without kind of inciting a violent situation or you want to pretend you didn't hear them, that's a good move because that harasser isn't owed any attention at all. Joining us now is Marina Corin, science reporter at The Atlantic. We're going to be talking about Apple AirPods and kind of how awkward these things make it for a lot of people. And then your focus, you wrote an article for The Atlantic, the case for wearing AirPods all the time. They kind of this universal don't talk to me sign. And this is where your focus is when the piece that you wrote for The Atlantic for a lot of women specifically it is a way to tune out some of those unwanted distractions, some of those, you know, maybe cat calls or, you know, street harassers, things like that, because it gives you that safety barrier. 
street harassers, they want it and they act as if they're entitled to your attention. That's not the case when you're ordering coffee, for example. So leaving your AirPods in while you're at Starbucks is rude because that barista kind of is owed some common courtesy. But when you're wearing them on your commute because you want to ignore someone without kind of inciting a difficult or violent situation or you want to pretend you didn't hear them, that's a good move because that harasser isn't owed any attention at all. Yeah, I love the way you put it in the in the piece. The currency of street harassers is attention. And if you're not giving them that, you're taking a little bit of that power away. The concern that I would have, though, is and, and this goes with anybody wearing headphones at any case, I mean, For a while, it was the big, giant, over-the-ear headphones that was kind of in. And right now, because of the AirPods, a lot of people have transitioned into that. But the safety issue, the not having the situational awareness of having those in sometimes, because maybe you are listening to music a little too loud or a podcast, whatever it could be, that situational awareness is, is important. So that was one of the concerns that I was thinking of when you were saying you could have them in all the time. So that is a really interesting dilemma because a lot of the people that I spoke with for this story said that they have been advised for years not to wear big, bulky, over-the-ear headphones because it might make them look like an easy target. But at the same time, these people want the convenience that you get with AirPods or anything that's cordless. And maybe they have the new iPhone and like this is the kind, they don't have that iPhone jack, like they have to use AirPods. And so they've adapted to this new reality. Some women told me that they make sure to pull their hair back behind their ears and really show that they're wearing headphones to make clear to street harassers, don't talk to me, but also to not look like a target in a way that maybe bigger headphones might make them look. What kind of reaction have you gotten so far from this argument to use the AirPods as this shield in this way? For many women, I have been hearing mostly sighs. Because they can relate. And also because in some ways it feels like there's no winning. Because one thing that is happening when a person is faced with a stranger that is harassing them, whether that's sexually, racially, or just making violent comments, that person in that split second has to kind of decide, do I ignore the harasser? Do I react in some way? And it's a very difficult question. And the way that headphones help is that they kind of help you solve that problem. They act as that barrier. You can just pretend you didn't hear the stranger. They, and, and then maybe they will be deterred and walk away. So I've gotten a lot of responses from women saying that they relate, they're exhausted, there's no winning. And that the real answer to this is to foster a society in which sexual harassment on your daily commute is not a problem. Like that's the real problem here and not the headphone use. I mean, you even outlined a couple of situations where a girl was sitting on the subway and some random dude came down and sat next to her and started relieving himself. And she just used it even as a coping mechanism, just the music to tune out what was happening. She didn't want to run away for fear of what he would do at that point. But even just with those things, just having the music, having that whatever background noise in your earbuds could help you to ignore what's going on. Right. And the story of that woman and her experience, which was awful, the man actually started masturbating while sitting next to her and then ejaculated onto the floor before she got to her stop. As she was telling me about this experience, I'm obviously horrified as anyone would be. Of course, yeah. But I was also just saddened by the fact that these two tiny gadgets in her ears felt like enough protection, you know, because there's not much I think a person can do in that situation, or at least it's very hard to figure out in the moment what to do. And so even something as small as a pair of headphones, if if that makes a difference, that's huge. And this kind of armor, this behavior, it does come with a bit of a societal cost because sometimes the stranger trying to get your attention and asking you to take your headphones out, he might just want directions 
or he might have like a really benign question. But for the people wearing the headphones, they don't know what kind of interaction that's going to be until they give that person their attention. And for many of these people, that risk is just too great. Like they'd rather come off rude and ignore a person than put themselves in danger. Marina Corrin, science reporter at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>